Well, it's our joy this morning to turn back to the study in Romans, Romans chapter 8, to prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table this morning. I was thinking this week as I was studying there's so much God's riches here in Romans 8, 28 through 30. I'll begin just by reading it and then setting our thoughts for us. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Rome. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a marvelous promise in this passage. It is wonderfully rich, and as I thought about the passage, I can understand that in the midst of our suffering and difficulty, the promise of this passage might feel a bit hollow to us. If you are suffering great difficulties and you come to a passage like this, your feelings and your understanding aren't exactly going to line up here. And you might be tempted to think to yourself, Pastor, that's easy for you to say, but it's hard for me to believe in the moment. The passage could come across as kind of platitudes. God's working this for good. It can come across as we don't, really care about your personal suffering, that your personal difficulties aren't important, God's doing something good in this, and it feels hollow, it feels empty, and it doesn't quite comfort in the moment as it ought. And I thought to myself, I would be doing you a great disservice if I didn't help you understand the riches of this passage so that when you're in those moments of suffering, that this passage you would run to and find great comfort in. As I looked around our congregation yet last week as we did our first look at this marvelous passage and as I thought about it this week, I was just burdened by a lot of things. Things that I know that are taking place within our congregation and and even extended families beyond our congregation but friends that we know of. I've watched people suffer great difficulties. I've watched wives come into a counseling room grieved at their husband's rebellion. I have watched and looked in the eyes of parents when they have buried their kids. I know what it is to sit down with somebody who has been abused and mistreated by others and wonder where is God in all of this. I know what it's like when somebody has been given a diagnosis that they have just a few short weeks left in life and they are going to die. I know what it is like to see that kind of suffering. And in the midst of somebody suffering a great difficulty, when we come to a passage like this in Romans 8, 28, and we say God is causing all things to work together for good, we want that truth to ring so clear in their hearts and minds that they leave comforted. Don't leave despairing. Because this isn't a passage that is indiscriminately thrown around to everybody, for there are groups that this promise is not for. 
This is not a promise for the God rejecter. This is not a promise for the atheist or for the one who has uh, been obstinate towards God and hates God. This promise is not for them. Nor is this a promise for one who denies the power of God and the working of God. If you are denying his, his sovereign work, you deny what he has revealed about himself, that he is the sovereign one who demonstrates his authority over his creation, then you wouldn't be comforted by this passage either. For you believe all things is just a matter of fate, and that life is just randomly directing as it will. Neither would have comfort in this particular passage. For if we have a low view of God, there is no comfort in this truth that God is working all things together because he can't work it together. And if you deny God altogether, there can be no comfort either because you don't believe that there is any power that could move and direct. So that there is a particular group, even revealed in this text, that this promise is for. We don't run around throwing this promise around to all, for this promise is for God's people. One would ask, how am I to process these traumatic events that happen all around me? How am I to process what is taking place? How is it that we could say God is at work? And this doesn't sound like a trite answer, but it is comforted because it's comforting to us because it is anchored in truth. It's anchored in God's purposes and what God is working in. That's what I want to help us understand this morning as we work our way through this. And what is interesting for us as we work our way with through this passage, it is possible for us to err in this sense and think God is actually causing the evil. He is actually throwing uh, upon us this wickedness that we would have good as a result. It's the temptation for us to believe in this. that God is even moving in the good. And we sometimes err by jumping too far and assuming particular answers. And we have to be clear with what the scriptures are unfolding here. Because the Bible is very clear in this principle. When James says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God isn't driven by evil, moving evil, tempted by evil. or So that we understand then, how do I understand that evil events occur, but God is not the active agent driving that evil? How am I to understand that? Well, this is exactly where our text takes us into that mystery and gives us a perspective as Paul lays this out for us. What is, help, what is helpful for us to understand in this passage as we are working our way through it, is this emphasis in this passage is not in God's actively directing uh, evil for good, but that in God taking evil deeds brings good out of it. The emphasis is not on the front end of God driving evil for good results, but on the back end that when evil occurs or as evil occurs, God accomplishes good purposes. That is the emphasis in this. And this is what we want to understand when we're working our way through this passage. And I think it becomes very clear in 
a translation. Right here you have the English translation. The New American says it like this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This pretty much says the same thing in the ESV and other versions. That's the emphasis. But listen to this translation, and it follows the word order in the Greek. We'll call it the uh, Mark Rag version. Here's Mark's version. It's this. But we know that to those who love God... All things he works together to good, to those called according to a purpose. That is the literal word order of the verse here from the original. The emphasis is what we know, the knowledge we have, and it is for those who love God. He works all things together to good. God is not emphasizing the active work of God in evil, but is emphasizing his good work in the midst of evil. That's the emphasis that this passage brings forth. And in that, there's a promise for us. There's a promise that comforts us in the midst of the distresses we face because there are real distresses in life, real difficulties. There are real problems that many want to avoid and many run from and just say, don't talk about those things because they bring so much burden upon us. But what I want you to see is that in the midst of those real sufferings and real difficulties, that your hope should be anchored in God, for there is a rich promise here for God's people. So there's this promise is this, and I want to show you three aspects of God's promise in this verse. I want to show you the people of the promise, the working of this promise, and the security of this promise. There is a promise for a particular people, there is a particular work, and there is a security in this promise that should comfort us in the midst of our distresses. And it should also teach us how we minister to one another these very promises. If, you, if one is lacking assurance or lacking confidence in this truth, we start at the beginning point. Do, are you a, a person, a child of God? Do you have a right to this promise? Do you demonstrate a love for God? Secondly, do we understand his working? What is he accomplishing? And thirdly, do you understand what it's rooted in, what it's secured by God's very work? This is what we need we're going to hold to this promise in the midst of our storms. Because certainly great difficulties come upon us. And in those moments, we are tempted to question the promise that God makes in this very passage. So first of all, the people of this promise. Again, as our text indicates in the middle there, it works together for good to those who love God. And as I pointed out in the translation, the, the emphatic emphasis is on to those who love God, all things work together for good. And the emphasis is on the people. And who are the people? The people are those who love God. That's the identification. Who has a right to hold to this promise? You who love God have a right to hold to this promise. This promise is for believers. It's not an indiscriminate promise for all. It is a promise particularly for those who believe, who love God, who believe the gospel of God. To put it in Paul's language to the Romans, if you believe, if you love God, 
To put it in Jesus' words, to love God is to uh, keep, if you, Christ says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's those who love God, love God's ways, love his commandments, love righteousness. They love holiness. They love what is good. They love the things of God. They love the ways of God. They rejoice in the purposes of God. That is the person who this promise is for. It's those who have confessed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the one who has the hope in this promise. That God is working all things for good for those who love him. They love the Spirit and they yield to the Spirit's directing in their life. They love the truth and they are hungering and thirsting after the truth just as they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They love the things that are consistent with God and they constantly rejoice in putting God on display. This isn't, a, again, an indiscriminate promise to anyone who's suffering in the world. God is taking that suffering using for good. It is particularly for the heirs, for the children of God. You remember that's also in the context. Even in the context, back in verse, verse 14 of Romans chapter 8, it says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Verse 15, you haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons that cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and have children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are children of God. We are heirs. We too, as he continued on, we too groan in our sufferings and difficulties as verse 23 and following describes. We, the heirs, we who love God, we're the ones that God is working in and through here. And it is true that God may actually use difficulties to lead us to a point where we will turn to him and love him. I love this. I think about it in my own personal life. It wasn't until great difficulty came. It wasn't until there was the awareness in my own life of the emptiness of my own abilities and my need for God that I turned in my own heart and said, God, you and you alone I trust. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus said when he came. Jesus came, and this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Synoptic Gospels each record this statement where Jesus came and he said these words, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The emphasis, as Jesus says, the one who's led to their own emptiness, their own awareness of their sinfulness, those are the ones he calls to himself. Those are the ones who come. As Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1.15 God came to reveal to sinners the way, the path of righteousness. So God would use the difficulties to stimulate the one to turn and love him and believe upon him follow after him. It is those who love God that have the hope that God is at work for them in this promise. 
so that they come to a kind of saving faith and where they confess that they are absolutely bankrupt, that they have no power, no strength, they're hopeless, and that all they can do is bring corruption. It is that one who, who has nothing saying, God, rescue me, that God comes to save. That's a love for God. Say love is, recognizes, I have nothing to contribute, God. I need everything. These are the ones, says here again, to those who love God, he works all things together. Again, if you're struggling, and this is the, the marvelous truth of this verse here, because God comes, and demonstrates his marvelous work and rescues those who, who love him, those who are devoted to him, he rescues. The marvelous truth of this verse is this, that no sinner can play the victim card when it comes to their suffering. No sinner can say, well, I suffered so much, I've suffered so miserably, I've suffered so much in life that I just hate God and I hate his ways because why would God allow this to happen? Because the answer is that God uses these things for good. That God would rescue the sinner. That God would leave the sinner at the end of his own abilities that he would turn out upon God and trust God. You cannot say, God, this is unfair because God comes to rescue us, to deliver us. God directs us in the midst of our difficulties to turn to him. God directs us in the midst of our sufferings to find comfort in him. God directs us in the midst of our despair to find peace in him. This is a passage that removes from the sinner the right to play the victim. Because they can turn to God and find his love right now. As Jesus said like this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. There is peace in God, and there is deliverance in God, and there is grace found in God. And particularly here, the promise is for those who love God. For those who love God, the promise made in this passage is for them. So that if your life is in despair, it is in turmoil, it is filled with uncertainty and difficulty, the solution is turn to God and find deliverance. For all who come to me, he says, I will not cast out. Now, maybe at this moment you're thinking, okay, I do believe God. I love him. I believe in his ways. I trust him. But my love is fickle. It's not as consistent as it ought to be. Some days I'm right on track, and the next day I'm cold as ice. I'm inconsistent in my practices. I cannot seem to be consistently loving him with my whole heart. And I say to you, hold on to that. Because in the third point here, the security of this promise, we recognize that our comfort in this promise doesn't rest in the quality of our love. This is only, first of all, the identity of the one who has the right to this promise. The identity is for those who love God. Secondly, the working of the promise. Notice this. 
the working of this promise. Again, the text says, God causes all things to work together for good. And as I said, literally, the order, we know that to those who love God, all things he works together for good is the reference. All things he works together for good. This is the working of the promise. This is an active promise. The active promise is God is at work. God is directing, even in the midst of the difficulties, even in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of whatever turmoil you're facing in life, whatever uncertainty, whatever is causing the distress that you are facing, God is working. He is working behind it. Directing, accomplishing his good purposes. Now, this is where I want to be clear because, again, oftentimes one wants to put God in the driver's seat, driving the evil. But that's not how God describes his activities. Turn back to chapter 1 of Romans, and I just want to show you this. Particularly how God describes himself in relation to the wicked and the wicked's actions. It's brought out right here in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. Starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Where is the activity here? It is in the unrighteous who are taking uh, the righteousness of God and suppressing it. They are pushing it down. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, have, are being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Speaking of general revelation, you can look around in general revelation and you can see there's a powerful God out there, that he is, uh, there is a God because of the order of creation, that he, he, has, he is unmatched in his magnitude and size at the scope of creation. All of his invisible attributes are on display. Yet men suppress this truth, suppress it in unrighteousness. They're hostile to it. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. He goes on and talks about the demise of the unrighteous as they rejected God and they started worshiping creation. Um, And then notice in verses 24, 26, and verse 28 what God does as a result. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 24. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What is the greatest expression of God's judgment? Him pulling back his grace. For God to pull back his hand of protection. For God to turn man over to himself 
For God gave them over to their own passions, their own impurity, to their own corrupt mind. This isn't God driving man to do evil. This is God getting out of the way and letting man go do what is on his heart. To walk into ungodliness, to unrighteousness. And in this, God demonstrates the exceeding wickedness of the wicked as he pulls back his restraining grace and then man runs into unrighteousness, heading on to rebellion and into his own demise. This is, one sense, how God works. He works in exposing the unrighteous by pulling back or withholding his grace and favor that the unrighteous would be revealed. That's one working of God. But our promise here back in Romans 8.28 then is this. It isn't that God is driving the wicked to wickedness. It is that in wickedness, God is bringing about good. It is in the rebellion, it is in the hostility, it is in the rejection that God takes those, that rejection and brings about good. There's so many examples of this. We have a few minutes this morning. Let me take one. Let me show you this. Turn over to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we'll start in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. Because there is an example here in 2 Samuel in Absalom's life. Absalom is the son of David. Absalom was rebelling against his father, David. And he was turning the nation of Israel against his father, he was hostile. Second Samuel 15 describes Absalom's conspiracy as he was seeking to turn all of the people against uh, his father David. And in the midst of turning all of the people against his father David, he went to David's counselors, Ahithophel. He went to Ahithophel and said he went to get Ahithophel's counsel. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 15 describes that. It says, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilhal, which he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So here Absalom was strategically planning how he was going to overthrow David and he took one of David's own counselors and brought him onto his side and now he is gaining counsel from this trusted source. Going to chapter 16, describes some very wicked events. Uh, it's recorded there in the Bible, you can read it on your own. But we head over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, Hethel is called upon again to give counsel in 2 Samuel 17. And now David is cornered. Absalom is in the city of David. Absalom has taken the throne. David is on the run. And the question is, what should, uh, should Absalom do? And Hithophel comes and says, here's what you need to do. Send me and a group of men to go pursue David, and I'll catch up with him, and I will kill him, and I will send all the valiant men into the hills, and I will come back, and we will conquer David, and everyone's going to turn to you, Absalom, and give you loyalty. That was the plan. Absalom loved the plan, but thought, hmm, maybe I need a second advice. Maybe I need another counselor. 
So he calls upon another counselor, Hushai, recorded in verses 8 through 14, and Hushai comes in. And I'll notice this in verse 8. So he's heard the counsel of Ahithophel, and he has thought this would be great advice, but Hushai comes in. Here's what he says there, Hushai. Verse 8, moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place, and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears of it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Basically, Yushai comes and says, you can't do that. David's too powerful, has too much of a reputation. He's too skilled at war. He's not even with the people. He's in the caves. He's going to come back. He's going to get out of your hands, and he's going to make you look bad. You can't do that. Why would all this happen? God gives us insight in verse 14. Ultimately, what happens, Absalom gets terrified, doesn't believe Ahithophel, and thinks Ahithophel gave him bad counsel. He goes with the Hushai's counsel, and then verse 14 gives us insight into what was happening. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord, notice, and this is Samuel's insight to what was happening, for the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Now consider this for a moment. How did God thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Well, Hushai came bringing truth. Everything he said about David was true. Everything he said about David's valiance was true. Maybe we don't know if he was actually in a cave or not, but every indication here through this counsel. It wasn't God creating, directing, actively evil. It was God here using this event to accomplish his good purposes. Multiple counselors, confusing the council, directing and all these things, and where Samuel can draw our attention to, God was at work in it, confusing Ahithophel's council so that Absalom would be judged. God is at work. Just like, just like we saw in Isaiah chapter 45, God is the God who brings about well-being and creating calamity. God is the God who is, does all these things. Isaiah 45, 7, he directs. It's God directing. Turning back to Romans chapter 8, then God would work to bring judgment. God would work to thwart the purposes of the wicked, but also to preserve the righteous. But our text says particularly, God causes all things to work together for good. 
And this is where the struggle is for us, is the definition of good. What defines good? Because we are tempted to think, well, good means my happiness. Good means my security. Good means my rest. Good means my prosperity. Good means that which brings me comfort. In my time of distress, that is what is good. But it wasn't good when Joseph was sold into or thrown into a pit. It certainly then wouldn't be good if Joseph was sold into slavery. And it wouldn't have been good when Joseph was mistreated in Pharaoh's uh, Potiphar's house and thrown into prison. It wouldn't have been good if Joseph was forgotten. But yet Joseph says all these things were for good. What is good then? Good is God's purposes. So what he describes here, who called, again, he works all things together for good. You know, we don't see good in the midst of our moments because we define good differently than what God defines it. Think about, and the good particularly in this context is clearly our salvation. Because it comes even in the next verse. He talks about our salvation but it, he tells us in verse 29, he also predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. The good is our, conforming, our being conformed into the image of the son. The good is God rescuing us and saving us. Think about this as far as good, broadening our horizons to understand what is good in the midst of our suffering. Well, here are some good things that happen in the midst of our suffering and difficulty. It is good for us to, lo- to hold loosely to earthly things and to hold tightly to heavenly things. That's good for us. It's good for us to have an increasing hope in heavenly rewards especially as we see our earthly treasures crumble. It's good for us to have an increasing faith. It is good for us to have an assurance that is strengthened and growing. That's good for us. I can tell you, there's nothing like cold water to the face of the soul than facing death. When you face death, at that moment, you are immediately made known if you have assurance of God's work or not. It's good in the midst of our suffering for assurance to increase. It is good in the midst of our suffering for us to suffer like Christ suffered, for we find a communion with Christ that we couldn't in any other way. It's good to know that our faith is not fair-weathered, that we love Christ always when the days are good, but then forget him when the days are bad. It's good that even in these difficult days, in the difficult moments, there is still an increasing love for God and a love for Christ that grows. That is good. It's good to know that we share in the sufferings that the rest of the brethren in Christ share in, that we're not alone in this suffering, and that we suffer just as others suffer in Christ. And it's good to know in the midst of those sufferings and difficulties that God's promises comfort our hearts and bring assurance, and bring peace, and bring joy. It's also good to know that that for us, God's children, God's heirs, that our suffering is limited, and our joy is eternal. That's different than the unbeliever. 
For the unbeliever, their joy is limited and their suffering is eternal. But for you and I, those who love God, those who believe, are, we're reminded in this moment, my suffering is limited. It has a timeline. And that timeline will end. My joy is eternal and that will never end. For there is no one who can take God off his throne and there's no one who can stop God. So there's no end to the joy that is to come. In the midst of the suffering, we learn that. And then we will appreciate all the more the joy when it is eternal. And then lastly, it is good to know that we cannot depend upon ourselves and our resources in the midst of our suffering, but that we can depend upon God and he is faithful to his promise. Keeps us and preserves us. I can say again, over and over again, it is so much sweetness when we embrace the bitterness of suffering because we see these promises are true. He is at work. This leads us to the last element and is the security of this promise. The people of the promise are those who love God. The security or the, the work of the promise is God is working all things for good. And the security of this promise is this. As the end of verse 28, to those who are called according to his purpose. The security of this is God's effectual call. God's calling out his people to himself. Back to the question that I had asked earlier about our, our own fickle love. Does my fickle love get in the way and keep me from this promise? And the answer is emphatically no, because God is the God who is effectually calling people to himself. God calls according to a purpose. God accomplishes it. There's so many ways that we can demonstrate this, but uh, let me just show you from Matthew chapter 22. If you want to turn over to Matthew 22, I wanted to show you this truth brought out. Matthew 22, the Lord Jesus gives a parable here, a parable about the marriage feast. It's interesting about this particular verse is the context by which it is given because Jesus, this is on the first day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and a bunch of people have opposed him and so he gives a, a, a series of parables to them to speak about his, well actually this is day two, he's speaking to this group about their rebellion because ultimately in this group, he's seeing some who had come to God and praise him and some who are rejecting, happening all right in front of him. And he gives this parable, the parable of the marriage feast. And in the midst of this parable of the marriage feast, he tells them that the a wealthy landowner, a king, is giving, uh, having a, a marriage feast and he's inviting everybody to come. And when he opens the doors, no one's there. So he sends out his servants and he goes, says to them, go everywhere, go to the highways and byways, gather everybody you can and bring them together to this feast. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here? without wedding clothes. And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then these words, verse 14. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. He's giving the distinction between the general call that all are invited, but the particular call, the effectual call, those who are chosen. That's the idea that we are emphasizing here in Romans chapter 8, 28. For those who are called according to a purpose, those who are chosen, those who God has selected, these have the hope of the promise. We say, well, I've looked at my heel and I don't see an E there as elect. I don't have a hologram and I can tell I'm elect. How would anyone know they're elect? Well, right back to the beginning of the verse. To all those who love God. That's how you know. Do you love God? Confess faith in Christ? Have you believed upon him? Then you know that he has chosen you. He has called you for a purpose. Called for a purpose here is demonstrated that God is working for a particular purpose through all of our difficulties, through all this suffering. For all that we face, God is working for a particular purpose. What she then unfolds in verses 30, uh, 29 and 30, and we will expand on next week, but for now we can simply state it like this, God is working to conform us to the image of his Son, conforming us into the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what secures the promise. There is no needless suffering for those who are children of God. The children of God are being conformed into the image of the Son. So, brethren, if you are facing any kind of difficulty, overwhelmed by any kind of, of pressure in life, your confidence is in this promise that as you love him, as you love God and love his ways, as you love his truth, he is at work for good in this because he has called you for a purpose and he is going to demonstrate that purpose. Maybe this side of glory, you'll get to see it. Maybe this side of glory, it will all make sense to you. But if not, on the other side. I mean, I think about Job, for example, and Job's suffering. As he went through all the difficulties, you know, read through the book of Job, and what Job didn't recognize, his, all of his difficulties started with a cosmic struggle there as Satan came to God and, and brought an accusation. And never did, did God explain it to Job, even when God revealed himself from chapters 38 and following, he doesn't say, well, you didn't recognize that Satan came to me and I turned you over. He revealed that through the Holy Spirit, as the book of Job was written. I guarantee you now, Job knows, now he's in heaven, and if he didn't have access to the scriptures, angels do, and they will tell him, so now he knows the answer. But he didn't know then. So the same is true for us. Our, our hope and anchor of this promise is this. If you love God, he's at work in all things for good, because he's called you and me for a purpose. And I would say to you, if you don't love God and you've just been facing difficulties and been hostile to him, recognize this. You can hold to this promise right now by turning to him and loving him. There's no excuse, no victim card, because God has said, all those who come to me, I will not cast out. 
Turn to God and believe, and then this promise is yours too.